Good evening. It's Tuesday, November 14th. Welcome to a new episode of System Update, our live nightly show that airs every Monday through Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern, exclusively here on Rumble, the free speech alternative to YouTube. Tonight, New York's Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul announced a major new initiative today that she says is necessary to combat what she and many others call an exploding crisis of anti-Semitism in both New York State and in the country. The governor has implemented a massive new program of spying on the social media activities of citizens in order to find out who is being hateful and to provide the state with sufficient resources to counteract anyone with views that the state regards as sufficiently hateful to merit their attention. Governor Hochul has actually been advocating social media uh, spying programs like this for many years now in the name of stopping hate speech. Ever since she took over that position when former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo resigned in disgrace. But as so often happens with new wars and with claim crises of domestic hate speech, Governor Hochul has not been able to achieve this goal until now. She has seized on this opportunity and on widespread claims that anti-Semitism is now a national crisis endangering American Jews everywhere to justify this monitoring of social media activities and to provide both state and local police significant new resources to engage in this online snooping. As always, wars have a domestic component and it almost always leads to an increase in the amount of state power in the name of keeping the population safe. You can call it the 9-11 lesson if you want, but the reality is, is that every American war and wars generally are seized on this way to erode civil liberties and massively increase the power of the state, even when, as here, it's not even an attack on the United States, but on a foreign country on the other side of the world. But by pushing this narrative that Americans are somehow unsafe in the United States, specifically American Jews, it gives politicians, as Kathy Hochul is doing, the opportunity to say, we need more power to keep you safe. That is always the dynamic that leads to authoritarianism and new wars, and it's happening even now when our nation is not officially at war, another country is. Then, one of our favorite guests is Columbia professor Jeffrey Sachs, who has a long career in government and academia, has seen many vital historical events over the last several decades up close and firsthand, and has become one of the most independent-minded scholars and former establishment insiders. We'll talk to Professor Sachs about this new Israel-Gaza war, the very active U.S. role in it, the war in Ukraine, remember that, whether there is any hope for the U.S. and Ukraine to achieve its stated goals and other vital developments in international affairs. And then finally, Michael Tracy, the lovable independent journalist who is a frequent guest of ours, has spent the last several weeks traveling throughout the state of Israel, where he still is located now. He has attended all sorts of protests against the Netanyahu government by Israeli Jews, has interviewed dozens of Israeli Jews and Israeli Arabs, and has done his best to get as complete a picture as he can of the domestic debate and domestic situation inside that country. And we speak to him live from Jerusalem about all of that as well. Before we get to our show, a few programming notes. We are encouraging our viewers to download the Rumble app, which works on both your smart TV and your telephone. And if you do so, you can follow the shows you most like to watch on, on Rumble, which obviously includes System Update and others. And if you enable notifications, as we hope you will, it means that the minute one of the shows you follow begins to broadcast live on Rumble, you'll be immediately notified by phone or email, however you want. So you can click on that link and begin watching the show. You don't have to wait around in the event someone, not us, but someone else is late or have to wonder and remember, try and keep 
keep track of who goes on what time. It really helps the live audience size of our show and therefore the Rumble platform itself. As another reminder, system update, every episode is available in podcast version where you can follow us on Spotify, Apple, and all other major podcasting platforms. Each episode broadcast uh, is posted there 12 hours after we first broadcast the episode live here on Rumble. And if you rate, review, and follow the show, it really helps spread the visibility of the program. As a final reminder, every Tuesday and Thursday night, and so tonight being Tuesday, once we're done with our live show here on Rumble, we move to Locals, which is part of the Rumble platform, for our live interactive after show exclusively for subscribers to our locals community where we take your questions, respond to your feedback and critiques, hear your suggestions for future shows. And if you want to become a member of our locals community, which also gives you access to the daily transcripts we post of every program that we broadcast here, as well as original journalism that we intend to publish there. And it really just helps support the independent journalism that we're trying to do here on Rumble, simply click the join button right below the video player on the Rumble page and it will take you directly to our Locals community. For now, welcome to a new episode of System Update, starting right now. Every time there's a new war, not just a war that the United States directly fights in, but a war that the United States decides to take on as one of its own proxy wars, there's obviously a lot of implications geostrategically, geopolitically, and financially inside the United States. We usually end up spending tens, or in the case of the war in Ukraine, hundreds of billions of dollars to fuel the war with no end in sight. We sometimes end up occupying a country for 20 years, as we did with Afghanistan, only for the Taliban to march right back into power. And you may recall that the stated purpose of the war in Afghanistan was to destroy and crush the Taliban to make sure it never existed anymore. And of course, after 20 years, the Taliban marched right back into power. But there's also always a domestic component, domestic implications from having a new war, either involving ourselves in a new war with the deployment of combat troops or by using all our resources, our money, and our weapons to support another country in one of its new wars. And generally, that means changes to our political structure, to our political culture, and particularly to the kinds of civil liberties we have. The history of war, if you go back and look at almost every war that the United States has fought in, it has entailed erosions of civil liberties, and it's not hard to understand why. The nature of getting the United States and its population to agree to involve itself in a new war is a claim that we are under threat, that we face some grave danger. You have to put the population in fear of something in order to get them to agree to support a new war. And once the population is in fear as a result of a new war, the population wants to be protected. That's just a natural human instinct. And once you convince the population that they have something to fear and are in need of protection, they will naturally not just be willing to give up a lot of rights and invest more power in the state, but be eager to do so. They'll demand that the state seize more power in order to do things that previously it could never do. And that's exactly what's happening now. That happened with every crisis we've had over the past seven years, whether it be COVID or the war in Ukraine or January 6th. All of that ushered in new forms of internet control and censorship as we've been over many times before. That is certainly happening true now with this new war between Israel and Gaza that the United States has been involved in. We've covered on our show many times before the fact that it has led to all new censorship all throughout the West, but here at home as well. We have had all kinds of firings of people who are dissidents to the war 
And now what we have is the Democratic governor of New York seizing on these new fears, specifically the fears of anti-Semitism that we're told that all American Jews must quiver in the face of. American Jews can't leave their homes. Their children in college can't leave their dorm rooms. Just the country has become unsafe for American Jews at the narrative. And as a result, Kathy Hochul sees this fear mongering going on. And she's decided, oh, here's an opportunity for me to grab more power. Specifically, the power to surveil the internet, a power I've been wanting to get for myself for many years and haven't been able to. But now that the country is in fear, I'm able to get it. So she announced today, and I don't know if we have the video ready or not, or any of our uh, videos. Yes, we do. So that's good. So Kathy Hochul today gave a speech in which she explained why Americans need to be in fear and why it is that we need her to save us from these new dangers and what she intends to do and what power she needs, she intends to claim and is claiming in the name of keeping us all safe. Let's listen to our new protector, Kathy Hochul, the Democratic governor of New York, as she explains the new power she will have over the Internet. Good morning. We have determined that the rising level of hate and anti-Semitism in particular poses a clear and present danger to the safety and well-being of all New Yorkers. And I, as governor, am doing everything in my power to fight back. I just convened an emergency meeting with Jewish leaders and law enforcement to discuss strategies. I had the New York State Police Office of Counterterrorism, the MTA Police, the Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services, federal law enforcement, including the ATF, as well as religious leaders from various organizations in different parts of the state and clergy as well. Here's what I share with them. The day that Hamas attacked Israel, October 7th, and the rise in hate crimes began instantaneously, I immediately deployed the state police to be on high alert to protect vulnerable assets. We've had regular disruptions now in our transit terminals, including a major incident at Grand Central over the weekend. And as we have- All right, let me just stop there. So we've had a major incident, a major security incident at Grand Central. What was that? Was it like a terrorist attack? Did Hamas come and blow up a train? Did Hezbollah come and start shooting up a car and trying to kill Jews? No, that's not what she means. This devastating, threatening incident in Grand Central Station. You know what it is that she's referring to? She's referring to this. A protest against the war in Israel that the United States and the Biden administration are supporting by a group of Jewish activists who are opposed to the war in Israel. They're from CBS New York, October 28, 2023, over 200 arrested at Grand Central Terminal during rally for ceasefire in Gaza. Quote, hundreds of demonstrators took over Grand Central Terminal on Friday calling for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. More than 200 were arrested. Hundreds of demonstrators from a Jewish activist group made their way into Grand Central Terminal's main concourse and staged a sit-in during rush hour. The group, Jewish Voice for Peace, which is not a designated terrorist group, has no history of engaging in violence, demanded a ceasefire in Gaza on a day Israeli military forces increased incursions. Quote, right now you are hearing thousands of Jewish New Yorkers who are raising our voices so clear that our safety can never come at the expense of another community's safety, Jewish Voice for Peace spokesperson Jay Sapper said. Now, isn't it amazing 
that when trying to convince Americans and New Yorkers that Jews are in such danger that we need Kathy Hochul to engage in all kinds of special new security measures, including censoring and monitoring the internet, that she pretended she was referencing some major security event at Grand Central Station when, in fact, it was nothing other than Jewish residents of New York exercising their core constitutional right to protest their government's war policy. It wasn't wasn't an attack by Hamas or by Hezbollah in, in Grand Central Station. But she tried to make it seem that's what she's reaching for. She needs, in order to convince you to be happy with this, to acquiesce to it, she needs to scare you. She needs to say there's been major security incidents all over New York ever since October 7th. And the only thing she can cite of any significance is a protest that happened in Grand Central Station that was carried out by Jewish students, though she, of course, didn't tell you that, who are peaceful, who are not terrorists, who engage in no violence and attack nobody. Let's listen to the rest of how she's going to save us from these marauding hordes of Jewish peace activists. Including a major incident at Grand Central over the weekend. And as we a major incident, major, major incident at Grand Central. Approach some of the busiest travel days of the year heading into Thanksgiving. I want to make sure as I spoke to these leaders in law enforcement that they have a plan to ensure that our commuters will be able to go about their lives freely without disruption. Also, we're very focused on the data we're collecting from surveillance efforts. What's being- The data, we're very focused on the data that we're collecting from surveillance efforts. Obviously, I became better known as a journalist as a result of the work I did in 2013 with my source, Edward Snowden, when he came forward and enabled us myself and the documentarian Laura Poitras and the media outlets with whom we worked to report that the NSA, in the name of that war and the fear that it ushered in, the war on terror, led to a massive new warrantless domestic indiscriminate spying program against the American citizenry. It's the same dynamic here. I know from people in my life that there really are Jews, American Jews, who have been convinced that they can't leave their house safely. The media is very powerful. Activists or groups are very powerful. If you keep telling a group of people you are in danger, there are mobs, violent hate mobs, roving around in the street ready to murder you because of who you are. People are going to get scared, and they have gotten scared. But this is the result of that kind of fear-mongering. We had Bata Ungersagen on our show last week. She's a very stalwart Israel supporter, an American Jewish woman. And one of the things I most appreciated about that interview, I pretty much loved the whole interview because it was a great exchange of ideas between she and I, even though we vehemently disagree on the broader Israel-Palestine conflict, the role of the U.S. in this war and what it should be. But the one thing she said was, look, I've been somebody who's been mocking woke fear-mongering, trying to convince American black people, LGBTs in the United States, that they're endangered in the United States, that the United States is a hateful country. There's hate mobs everywhere ready to kill them, spreading neurosis and fear and paranoia and hatred for the United States, trying to get people to think that they can't safely exist in the United States. The NAACP issued a travel advisory for black people when they want to go to Florida. So did LGBT groups. And... Obviously, when you do that, you spread paranoia and fear. And she said, this is enough. American Jews are safe in America. 
But the result of this fear-mongering is that Kathy Hochul gets to say things like, we're increasing our surveillance power, we're very focused on the domestic data that we're collecting. Efforts. What's being said on social media platforms? And we have launched an effort to be able to counter some of the negativity and reach out to people when we see hate speech being spoken about on, on online platforms. Now, she's not the most articulate politician ever, but I want to just replay what she said about what exactly is this new censorship, pro this new surveillance program that she's launching in the name of this fear that has been deliberately disseminated and cultivated among American Jews. Also, we're very focused on the data we're collecting from surveillance efforts. What's being said on social media platforms? And we have launched an effort to be able to counter some of the negativity and reach out to people when we see hate speech being spoken about on, on online platforms. Our media analysis, our social media analysis unit has ramped up its monitoring of sites to catch incitement to violence, direct threats to others. And all this is in response to our desire, our strong commitment to ensure that not only do New Yorkers be safe, but they also feel safe. Because personal security is about everything for them. As I said, no one walking down the street or in a subway. Do you see what this has led to? Do you see what this is leading to? This incessant drumbeat that because Hamas attacked Israel on the other side of the world, now American Jews are unsafe in the United States. Of course people are going to now want the government to engage in domestic surveillance of their fellow citizens. They're going to want more monitoring of social media, and she's stepping into that breach. Now, as I said, this is something she's wanted for a long time. Here from March of 2022, so almost 18 months ago, The Intercept reports Kathy Hochul is ready to spend millions on new police surveillance. New York State legislators have just days to question phone hacking, forensics, and fusion centers before the budget passes. In January, when New York City Mayor uh, Eric Adams released his highly publicized inaugural blueprint to combat gun violence, it set the stage for political commotion. His plans for ramped up policing, including new gun detection technology, increased patrols, and the redeployment of a notorious plainclothes unit have drawn condemnation from advocates and activists and praise from mainstream pundits, fueling the ongoing debate over cops' roles in our communities. Around the same time Adams released his plan, New York's Governor Kathy Hochul unveiled details of her own policing initiative to crack down on gun crime, but hardly anyone seemed to notice. Embedded within the dozen bills and hundreds of line items that make up her plan for next year's state budget, Hochul's administration has proposed tens of millions of dollars in several new initiatives to expand state policing and investigative power, including agencies' ability to serve veiled New Yorkers and gather intelligence on people not yet suspected of breaking the law. Among Hochul's proposals are a new statewide system of police intelligence gathering centers, which would engage in mass surveillance and whose model hinges on the use of unproven forensic science. Other proposals funds for new law enforcement social media surveillance personnel, the expansion of existing police intelligence gathering and sharing efforts and most likely technology that downloads the full contents of people's cell phones on tops of millions of dollars for more street policing. 
Now, even if you're not with me on this warning that this is being exaggerated to scare the domestic population into believing that they can't safely go outside and therefore need the government's protection, do you see what it's leading to? Do you trust the New York governor or the governor of any state to have the power to surveil the domestic population, including people who aren't suspected of committing any crimes, in order to detect who is posting what they regard as hateful content online and then having the power to counteract it using a police force called the Social Media Domestic Surveillance Unit? Because that's what is being done in the name of this narrative. Before we get to Professor Sachs, which we're about to do, I just want to show you an excerpt of the conversation I had with Tucker Carlson last week where he actually warned and brought this question up and asking me about the domestic component of this new war in Israel. Listen to what he said. It was one of the main people in the media selling the lie that al-Qaeda was responsible with Saddam Hussein for planning the 9-11 attack. He's now the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic. They get promoted for these lies. And so there won't be any accountability. These very same people, Victoria Newland, are all still in power, and they're going to continue to use these tactics because they never pay a price. To the contrary, they, ended up, they end up getting rewarded for it. It's a very familiar template. So their real aims are domestic. They use foreign conflicts to make change in the United States, to make the country, in fact, less democratic. But they use those conflicts abroad to divide the United States. So we're going to do this. We're going to spend all this money. We're going to imperil America's national security. And if you don't like it, then you are a tool of fill in the blanks. Saddam, Putin, Hamas. It, it seems like a uniquely poisonous way of running a country and not at all good for the country. No, I think that's exactly right. If it, it, it would, and that is days later, I promise you it won't be the last time Kathy Hochul is stepping into that void, into that fear, that funnel of fear that has been spread to say, don't worry, I'm here to protect you. We're going to monitor social media. We're going to identify the hateful people in the society and we're going to counteract them. We're going to go after them. You can't possibly be comfortable with that, no matter what your views on the Israeli-Gaza war are. But that will absolutely be a major implication of this war. Jeffrey Sachs is an economist. He is a policy analyst and has held many positions at Columbia University, where he is currently a university professor. He has served as special advisor to the UN Secretary General is credited with guiding several countries out of major debt crises over the last several decades and has become one of the nation's most influential scholars on international relations. He has been on System Update several times before, and we are always delighted to get his expertise. Professor Sachs, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us tonight. It's great to see you. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you again. Fantastic. Absolutely. So, Obviously, the last time we had you on, there was not this new war, this war in the Middle East between Israel and Gaza. The major parts of the world have obviously transformed and changed as a result of this brand new war. We were talking a lot about the last war when you were on the last few times, which is the war in Ukraine. I think people have forgotten that that's kind of still plodding along. But as far as this new war is concerned in Israel-Gaza, obviously, this latest outbreak began with this horrific attack on Israeli civilians by Hamas on October 7th. It's now been about five weeks of relentless Israeli bombing and now a ground invasion that many, many sources say, including U.S. intelligence, have killed in excess of 10,000 Palestinians, 4,500, almost 5,000 children, 
devastated the infrastructure of Gaza. What do you make of this war in general before we get to some specific questions? Well, it's a disaster, of course. Uh, what Israel is doing is a, a danger to Israel. It is uh, absolutely uh, one war crime after another in Gaza. Uh, it is not going to lead to uh, any kind of safety for Israel. So we have uh, yet another uh, absolute uh, disaster uh, on our hands, which is uh, worsening American security, uh, world security, uh, pushing uh, uh, the chances of more global war. So I can't say I'm, uh, well, no one can be uh, happy about this. Uh, this the, the Hamas attack was horrific. The response uh, has been uh, absolutely mind-boggling uh, in its inappropriateness uh, and the damage that it's creating. Uh, today, as uh, I'm sure you know, a, a uh, lawsuit was uh, filed uh, in uh, the federal court uh, of uh, district court for Northern uh, District of uh, California uh, by uh, uh, the um, uh, uh, what, what is the name of the group? Uh, the, the Center for Constitutional Rights uh, saying that uh, America is uh, complicit uh, in in genocide. Um, so uh, with a, a brief that is uh, horrifying, actually, because it's uh, dozens of pages uh, of uh, all of the horrific uh, things that are being committed by Israel right now. So this has to stop. Uh, this is uh, extraordinarily destructive uh, and dangerous. Yeah, there's no question this has become an American war, as almost every Israeli war has. And the Biden administration made clear we're going to give Israel everything it needs. Everybody knows in that region and around the world that when they see a bomb dropping on a hospital or an ambulance or a church or a school or a mosque, even with the Israeli claim that Hamas is there, everybody knows those are actually American bombs. America feeds Israel the bombs and pays for the bombs. And any reverberations on Israel always spill over to the United States as well. We have a sizable part of our audience, not a majority, I don't think, but certainly a non-trivial portion of our audience that definitely supports Israel. Now, maybe not everything they're doing, but certainly their response. And their argument is the following, and I want to get your response to it. Look, Israel was attacked in this, as you said, horrific way. We don't know exactly how many civilians died. Israel readjusted the number from 1,400 to 1,200 without a lot of explanation. Many hundreds of those people were on military bases, were soldiers. Other civilians were killed from the Israeli response, but obviously Hamas deliberately killed a lot of civilians. And their argument is no country could tolerate security breaches of that kind. You keep criticizing what Israel is doing, but what should Israel do in order to prevent an attack like this from happening again? Well, the first thing is uh, Israel let its guard down, which it should not have done. This was uh, a major security and intelligence failure. Israel had been warned in the days uh, leading up to October 7, uh, that uh, the Hamas militants were uh, going to undertake uh, some kind of operation. Uh, the uh, Egyptian government gave the warnings. But Israel has uh, the worst government in its history. Uh, the government failed completely. Uh, in fact, uh, it is uh, reported uh, widely uh, that uh, soldiers that were guarding uh, the uh, border of uh, Gaza and uh, Israel were 
on holiday or had been uh, shifted to the West Bank. Uh, and um, therefore, Israel let its guard down. Uh, and the first thing it should do is keep its guard up. So this is very basic. Uh, second thing that should have happened is that uh, Netanyahu should have stepped down and taken responsibility for this massive failure. The third is to think what is going to deliver Israeli security. Now, launching uh, a massive uh, war uh, in Gaza, uh, leveling a large part of northern Gaza, displacing hundreds of thousands of people, killing uh, more than 11,000 people and more than 4,500 children. And those are just the identified deaths because it is uh, widely presumed uh, that there are thousands uh, of children uh, and others uh, under the rubble still whose uh, deaths have not been accounted. The idea that this is going to lead to security is mind-boggling. Uh, what it has done is to isolate Israel almost entirely in the world. Israel has one backer left. Uh, that's the United States. I would say uh, within the United Nations of the 193 countries. Uh, you, you can't count, uh, uh, certainly you don't need two hands to count the number of countries that, that, that uh, support what Israel's doing. Probably it's uh, on one hand uh, maximum. Um, Israel has isolated itself. It's committing war crimes. Uh, today it was said that more than 100 UN workers have been killed uh, in this uh, uh, attack. The brazenness of it is also matched by the uh, uh, the the, uh, the rhetoric, uh, the intentionality of this extreme right wing cabinet to uh, level Gaza, uh, to treat uh, uh, the residents of Gaza as animals. Uh, that's uh, their line. Uh, to say that uh, Gaza will never recover from this. Uh, in other words, this brief uh, that was filed about uh, genocide documents the shocking statements because one of the conditions for a, uh, a, a claim of genocide under the Genocide Treaty is intent. And there is such vulgarity in the language of this uh, extremist right-wing government that it's there for all to see the ugliness of it. Now, Israel needs security, but it is never going to achieve security unless there is a political settlement of a conflict that has been going on at least, uh, one could say, for 57 years, uh, uh, since uh, 56 years, since uh, the Six-Day War in 1967. And that political settlement requires the political rights of the Palestinian people. And this government not only has uh, launched uh, a war that it cannot win that could spread to regional war, but uh, it absolutely opposes uh, vehemently, uh, vulgarly, any kind of two-state solution which 
the almost all the in fact i would say the the rest of the world because even in, in on that score the united states has reiterated almost every day uh, in recent days that that's the only way forward but this is a government which utterly rejects this so they're launching a war that they cannot win that will kill tens of thousands of innocents and without any political vision at all other than continued domination by Israel of the Palestinian people, which means uh, no peace at all. So nobody, uh, no friend of Israel should be uh, satisfied for one moment that what's happening is in Israel's interest. There isn't anything that's happening that isn't self-destructive of Israel, or maybe that's not the right way to say it, that Netanyahu is creating destruction of Israel. He's the worst prime minister Israel has ever had. This cabinet is the most extremist that Israel has ever had. And this cabinet is doing grave damage to Israel, starting with letting Israel's basic guard down and then responding in a way which is absolutely destructive of Israel's security and its interests. One of the, I think the event that comes to mind almost immediately, and this is something we've been emphasizing since the very first days after the October 7th attack, when I think the space to kind of criticize Israel was very limited. People were very traumatized by watching those images coming out of Israel. No one wanted to hear any criticism of Israel. So the thing we tried to say early on was, Look, we, we have a historical lesson, a recent historical lesson that's highly comparable, which is we also suffered a terrible terrorist attack on 9-11 22 years ago, and 3,000 civilians were killed on that day. Two gigantic uh, skyscrapers in, in New York City came crashing down on top of our fellow citizens. A plane was flown into the Pentagon. It was very traumatic. It was very outrageous. And... A lot of people have spent the last 20 years talking about the lessons of 9-11, the idea that we overreacted, we fell into bin Laden's hands by doing exactly what he hoped we would do, which was turn the world against us by going around the world madly bombing in a quest for vengeance, but no real geostrategic plan. We said we were going to go to Afghanistan to destroy the Taliban, and 20 years later, we left Afghanistan. The Taliban waltzed right back into power as though nothing had happened because 20 years of occupation and war radicalized the population even further against the West and in favor of the Taliban. But one of the things that has happened, and what happened back then after 9-11, was anybody who stood up and questioned these wars and what Bush and Cheney were doing with torture and Guantanamo and rendition and that whole panoply of things they wanted to do, everybody got accused to objected of being pro-terrorist or unpatriotic or on the side of Al-Qaeda, and it was very effective. It really repressed dissent for a long time in the United States. The tactic that's being used now, not just in Israel, but also in the United States, is to say that anyone who isn't fully supportive of the Israeli war is obviously guilty of anti-Semitism, must hate Jews, as a Jew myself, I've heard that, I don't know how many times every day for the last five weeks as I've expressed these criticisms of the Israeli response. I'm wondering what you make of that as a tactic and how do you react to that when you hear that? Well, let me say the analogy with 9-11 is even more direct. Uh, it's said that um, the United States uh, acted with rage and therefore uh, 
made uh, a lot of uh, grave errors. But I think it, it's actually deeper than that. Uh, the United States uh, government at the time, I would not say the, the nation, but I would say the government uh, under uh, George W. Bush Jr. and Cheney didn't react with rage so much uh, as react with a uh, planned neocon agenda, uh, which was actually uh, already in place in the late 1990s the project for a new American century. And the idea of the PNAC, the project for a new American century, was in a unipolar world, so they thought in their delusions that the U.S. stands alone in its power and can do whatever it wants and define reality the way that it wants, as was literally described by one of the neocon uh, 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 protagonists, uh, was that 9-11 would be used to take out every American foe. And so we know uh, that the first reaction to 9-11 wasn't even al-Qaeda or Afghanistan. The first reaction was Iraq. Now we can go after Iraq. Now we can go after Saddam Hussein. And it was questioned, what do you mean Iraq? Don't you mean Afghanistan? No, 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 we mean Iraq. Now we can do what we have wanted to do. And so this was an agenda of the United States. Uh, it was uh, absolutely mind-boggling uh, in, uh, uh, in its craziness, in its ineptitude, uh, in the trillions of dollars that it cost in the destruction of America's reputation around the world, uh, uh, in the freefall of American prestige, which, believe me, uh, happened and continues to happen and has uh, changed the world and uh, diminished uh, America's safety from uh, not just uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, but the uh, not so covert covert operations to overthrow Bashar al-Assad, the mobilization of NATO to overthrow Gaddafi. This was all a sequence uh, of operations uh, that was uh, anticipated already in the late 1990s. Now, the re reason I make all of this analogy is this uh, government of Netanyahu is, is not just acting with rage. It's acting with an agenda. And you look across the cabinet and listen to the words of Smotrich, the, uh, uh, the finance minister, of course, to Netanyahu himself, who's uh, just uh, the, the, the most awful prime minister in Israel's history, uh, to the interior minister, to uh, across the board, they have an agenda. Uh, the agenda has been what is called the greater uh, uh, Israel or greater uh, land of Israel, uh, which is that uh, Israel really should control in any way uh, not only Israel, but uh, the Palestinian territories, Gaza and the West Bank. And for some, it goes even beyond that because they look to the book of Joshua in the Bible and say, oh, the promised land is even beyond that. What they're doing it is includes like Jordan, Jordan and multiple Middle Eastern countries, all part of greater Israel. Uh, it, 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 it actually goes to Mesopotamia, yeah, so yeah. It, uh, it, it goes to the Euphrates, <laughs> right. no, no less. So 
Uh, it's a kind of mind-boggling book, by the way, to, to uh, read, <coughs> because it's a, it's a book of uh, serial genocides, uh, as a matter of fact. But the point is that uh, this cabinet wants to clear out Gaza. Uh, that was the first impulse. Actually, the United States was almost pulled along. They tried to talk uh, El Sisi uh, in Egypt uh, into this. Uh, he said, no way I'm going to be uh, a party to the next Nakba, the next disaster uh, of uh, the Palestinian people by opening uh, Rafah, the uh, border uh, with Gaza and Egypt, to uh, take in hundreds of thousands of Gazans fleeing uh, after Israel told them, you must flee for your life, giving them a few hours uh, to flee for their life. Um, so this is an agenda. And in that sense, the analogy to 9-11 uh, is, is even more precise. It's, it's not just blind rage. It's a, a political agenda. And we should understand, I think it's the smartest words uh, about war uh, that have been uh, uttered uh, since Sun Tzu, uh, since uh, the strategy of war in ancient uh, China, by von Clausewitz, uh, the, uh, the, the war theorist uh, in Germany uh, in uh, the period just after the Napoleonic Wars. And uh, in von Clausewitz's uh, famous book on war, he says very famously that war is the continuation of politics with other means. Uh, and so when you see conflict, think politics. Don't just think rage or attack and counterattack, but what's the underlying politics? In Ukraine, the underlying politics is NATO enlargement. This is a war over NATO enlargement, which uh, I think was a reckless thing for the United States to do, and it put Ukraine into uh, uh, the battleground of a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia, which is destroying Ukraine. Now, what is the politics here? The politics here is that uh, the people of Palestine do not have political rights. They live in a a condition dominated by Israel, effectively, as uh, countless organizations have rightly pointed out, an apartheid system imposed by Israel. And the whole world, including the United States, has said this has to be remedied by a Palestinian state. And even President Biden and Secretary of State Blinken have repeated this uh, several times in the last uh, days. But this is precisely what Netanyahu and his government oppose. So this is not a war to uh, end the Hamas threat in order to move to a state of Palestine, completely the opposite. This is a war being waged by Israel ostensibly to crush Hamas but to dominate the Palestinian lands. And this has been made absolutely explicit in the last couple of days because Blinken kind of murmured 
uh, well, uh, the, the Palestinian Authority should have control over uh, Gaza after this. And Netanyahu said, no way Israel's going to have full control over this. But, 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 but let me ask you about that now that you mentioned Blinken, because there is... Not just the, this is not just a war between Israel and Gaza. This is a war that the United States is very heavily involved in. We are feeding the Israelis an enormous amount of weaponry. Biden asked for $14 billion additional just to start. That, yes, it dwarfs what we've given to Ukraine, but on top of what we're already giving to the Israelis every year, it's a pretty significant amount. And one of the people who lived through 9 11 and learned all those lessons, presumably, or at least said he did was Joe Biden. Joe Biden was one of the key, I would argue, the most important Democratic senator as the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee in 2002, who advocated for the invasion of Iraq, uh, pushed the Democrats to vote for the authorization to use military force that Hillary Clinton, John Kerry, so many other Democratic senators ended up endorsing. Biden said it was a mistake. He regrets that vote. Yet he lived through all those events that you're describing, and yet Biden has been one of the most stalwart supporters of the Israeli government and of U.S. support for Israel for decades, and he continues to be. You know, he's kind of uttered a few phrases like, oh, we wish we would, they would be a little bit more careful. We wish we would, they would do a kind of humanitarian pause here and there. But nowhere near ever even thinking about rescinding what Biden pledged when he flew to, Netanyahu, to Israel with Netanyahu early on, which was, we are going to stand by you. There's no space between your government and ours. We're going to give you all the arms, all the money you need until the end of this conflict to make sure you win. There has now been, it's a little bit of a change, a pretty significant number of Democrats, voters on whom the Democrats rely for next year's election, young people, Muslims in Michigan and elsewhere in key swing states saying, we're not voting for you if you keep supporting these atrocities. And there's been a little bit of walk back, but nothing substantial. What is motivating Joe Biden? Is he a true believer in the superiority of Israel, the idea that Israel is a crucial American ally? Is it a political constraint that he feels like he's under, that he can't afford for Netanyahu to accuse him of not supporting Israel sufficiently? What is the U.S. motive in just how willing we are to throw our lot in to this war that, as you said, is resulting in full-scale isolation among pretty much everyone else on the planet? Well, let me say, first of all, uh, just as, as a, uh, a, a point of policy, if the United States uh, government uh, said um, we need a two-state solution and we need it now, it needs to be the uh, object of whatever actions are taken, first of all, the United States would find itself in partnership with all of the rest of the world, with the single exception, I would say, single exception of the Netanyahu government. And uh, the Netanyahu government uh, does not speak for the interests of the Israeli people, nor, I think, for the Israeli people at all right now. But the point is, if the United States followed through on the logic of what Biden and Blinken have said in recent days, they would find that the United States is part of a complete global consensus. That global consensus would effectively be exercised very uh, directly and institutionally in the UN Security Council, where there would be immediately a 
unanimous vote for a ceasefire based on moving to a two-state solution. And just so every listener understands <coughs> uh, correctly my own thought about this, that that move to a two-state solution would include intrinsically the demilitarization, disarming, demobilization of all of the violent militias, including Hamas, and there are several others as well, which have backers throughout the Middle East. So the first thing is that it would be possible for the U.S. to find a, a unanimity uh, other than Israel in the uh, rest of uh, the United Nations member states. Uh, it would be possible to find a full agreement on this with the Arab and Islamic leaders. And this is not a hunch on my part. One needs merely to look at the statement that the Arab and Islamic leaders made from their emergency meeting in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia, a couple of days ago. They didn't call for the destruction of Israel. They didn't wail uh, about uh, the evils. They said this needs a political solution now to save the lives of the people of Palestine, but also for the security of Israel. In other words, for everybody's security, this war needs to stop immediately and we need a two-state solution. And in that statement by the Arab and Islamic leaders, they pointed out a document which is absolutely important and fascinating for people to refresh their memories or to learn about for the first time if they don't know about it. And that is the 2002 Arab Peace Initiative, also spearheaded by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And what in 2002 the Arab leaders said is, we will normalize relations with Israel. We will have diplomatic relations. We will end the state of war with the achievement of a state of Palestine in a two-state solution. We will help to guarantee the security of Israel. One of the great lies of our time is there's no one to talk to. Uh, that's what uh, Netanyahu and his cronies say. The ones to talk to are Egypt, Jordan, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, uh, and indeed, by the way, Iran as well, which is actively engaged in constructive diplomacy that we have blown off repeatedly, including the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, the JCPOA, which was the deal uh, in 2015 with Iran uh, to uh, end sanctions uh, as part of uh, the uh, disbandment uh, by Iran of any nuclear program. And then Trump walked away from that, and Biden never walked back to it. All of this is to say there's plenty of grounds, plenty of grounds for constructive diplomacy right now for Israel's security. So why doesn't it happen? Because the Netanyahu government doesn't want it to happen. Because that constructive security, it's constructive towards a Palestinian but, but, but what, state. But what about the Biden government? Like, I don't see any signs 
that the Biden administration is using its massive leverage over Israel as the primary sponsor of Tel Aviv. Why isn't it? Why isn't it? You know, we can't know for sure, uh, but I would say my best guess uh, is uh, that uh, senior politicians of Biden's generation, okay, this is the septuagenarian and octogenarian generation, (laughs) are trained by instinct never show a glimmer of space between yourself and Israel because you will feel a backlash. And I think that it is just political instinct. Uh, You know, that's basically what Biden rides on these days anyway, is uh, whatever instinctual uh, motives uh, or urges uh, come to him. But I think it's basically that they believe don't show any space with Israel. That's the prudent measure for an American politician. By the way, it's completely wrong. It's so out of date. Uh, But we're seeing that sense of being out of date everywhere. We're seeing it on the campuses as well, where the older generation is pro-Israel and can't understand anything but complete pro-Israel sentiment. And the students are saying, oh, we're watching this mess slaughter taking place in Gaza. This is not right. And so there's a generational divide on the campuses. There's a generational divide in uh, the broader population. There's a generational divide among the voters. But my guess is that this is instinct and uh, out of date uh, spin doctors uh, in the White House uh, telling Biden, you've got to do it this way. And this is not a strong president. And it's an extraordinarily weak foreign policy team. They've gotten everything wrong. Remember, it's Jake Sullivan who said two weeks before October 7 that the Middle East is the quietest that it's been in 20 years. And actually in that article in Foreign Affairs specifically said that the tensions in Gaza have been wound down. So this is a group that's out of touch, not competent. And I think uh, just relying on what were the instincts of American politicians for decades, which is back Israel to the hilt no matter what. But now it has literally isolated the United States, so it's 191 against two, and it's not in America's interest. But by the way, I think people listening should understand this is not in Israel's interest. I'm not saying a word against Israel's interest. Israel is being damaged so severely by this miserable person, Netanyahu, uh, who should be in prison, by the way, because he's also corrupt on top of uh, being miserable in so many other ways. But Israel is being incredibly endangered by the wrongheaded approach that Israel's taking. Yeah, we're about to talk to Michael Tracy, who's spent the last several weeks traveling throughout Israel. And there's a lot of critics of Netanyahu and there's a lot of critics of the Israeli war effort, even more so, I think, in Israel than people, at least in the elite classes in the United States, feel comfortable expressing. I want to ask you about Ukraine, but before I do, you mentioned college campuses. College campuses. There has been a huge amount of focus over the last several years by the American pundit class, political class, on college campuses. I think a lot of people couldn't figure out why. I think you put your finger on one of the reasons, which is that there are some doctrines developing there that the American elite, on a bipartisan level, have never accepted and fear and dislike, one of which is this questioning of why we're so blindly supportive of Israel. And there's been this massive focus 
on college students since the outbreak of this war, trying to have billionaires compile a list of students who should be put on no higher blacklists because they signed petitions that were insufficiently supportive of Israel or overly critical of Israel. We've had efforts to pressure faculty to stop allowing pro-Palestinian protests from mega donors who are telling these schools we're going to withhold funding in the event that you don't change your policy or that you don't institutionally defend Israel. One of the centerpieces of that controversy is Harvard. I just had uh, Professor Walt on my show, uh, Stephen Walt, who talked about the situation at Harvard. But the other institution that often gets focused on with this issue is Columbia, which is where you're at. Talk to me a little bit about the concerns you have about the climates being the focus on American academic campuses, on the potential chilling effect. We interviewed some Harvard students who were put on those no hire lists for having signed this uh, statement. They're having trucks riding around the Harvard campus with their face on it, a megaphone blaring that they hate Jews and are anti-Semitic. Imagine the kind of harassment that brings. What has been your sense of what's happening on the Columbia campus? Look, I think there's one thing that universities should be doing right now, uh, and that is having discussions, sessions, lectures, teach-ins about history, about this conflict, uh, about uh, what is really happening. Uh, not only uh, the uh, Israel-Palestine conflict, but I would say Ukraine as well. The students are absolutely uh, unnerved and upset by a world of war. And uh, one of the responsibilities of a university is to discuss these issues, not to clamp down, for God's sake, not to say this is impermissible, but actually to teach, to learn, to discuss, to analyze together. There's not enough of that going on by a long shot. Uh, and this is uh, quite uh, disturbing because uh, the universities are, should be thinking institutions. Uh, they are institutions of diverse views. They should be in places of vigorous open debate, but especially honest and open inquiry. Columbia has uh, the greatest uh, historian uh, of uh, modern Palestine, Rashid Khalidi. Uh, he's brilliant. His books are, are uh, magnificent books about uh, the history and the plight of Palestine uh, during the last century. Um, students need to, to read those, to understand, to listen to Professor Khalidi and others, uh, to have an open discussion of all of this. Uh, instead, of course, Oh, you know, we've we've had uh, not uh, that kind of educational experience. We've had confrontation, donors yelling, threatening to withhold their funds if you don't crack down on this and that. The doxing, uh, it, it's it's horrible. I mean, this is so bad for American society to have that approach rather than saying, "My God, you know, this is very serious. Let's understand this." Uh, and of course. We're not really in an understanding mood on so many things in this country. Uh, when, when we talked about uh, Ukraine, there was a lot to understand. That was one of the things I've seen uh, close up for 30 years because I was 
involved as an advisor to Gorbachev, to Yeltsin, to Kuchma uh, in Ukraine uh, more than 30 years ago. And I wanted people to understand the background. What's the history? Read about this, understand it, debate it. But uh, of course, everything got nailed down. If you say one word that isn't uh, completely in line with the beating Russia, you're a Putin lover. You know, everything was to shut down debate and understanding rather than to discuss, understand, and analyze. And we're not serving our national interest, our social interest, our university's interest or capacity if we approach it that way. So it's, it's, it's not good. Absolutely. So let me ask you just my final question about Ukraine. Uh, those of us who are Kremlin agents, who are official uh, Russian apologists on various lists and stuff. There got, we go. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're having a little confederation of, of, of Putin apologists on the show. <laughs> we have another one coming up. Um, got put there because for months we were saying, look, it seems like the U.S. fueling of this war is actually making things a lot worse, that it doesn't seem like Ukraine will be able to win. Russia is a much larger country. The front line hasn't moved in a year. There have been tens of thousands of young Ukrainian conscripts and Russian soldiers as well who are losing their lives over the kind of inch-by-inch trench warfare that came to dominate World War I. And at the end of the day, there's no way Ukraine can expel Russia from that territory for all sorts of reasons. This should have been handled at the domestic, at the diplomatic table way early on. The Americans obviously didn't want that. And now here we are 18 months later with a new war, having spent over $100 billion, I think, even Washington and intelligence agencies throughout the West that were so gung-ho about Ukrainian victory are now finally coming to face the music that the Russians and the, that the Ukrainians are going to have to sit down. And part of that negotiation, whether you hate it or not, is going to be a ceding of some portion of Ukrainian territory to the Russians beyond the Crimean Peninsula that they already had control of since 2014. Looking back now on everything that has happened and where we are, what do you make of the last year of enormous amounts of loss of life and just the burning of huge amounts of resources on a war that really hasn't moved in over a year? Well, I think, uh, of course, this is uh, another massive, massive U.S. foreign policy disaster. Uh, right at the beginning, I wrote a, a piece called uh, the, the Latest Neocon Debacle, because the way that this has played out was completely foreseeable from the start, that this was going to go very badly. And not just uh, foreseeable, but predicted by people like you and Professor Mearsheimer yeah. and plenty of people who came through my program predicting with their foreign policy expertise that exactly what has happened would happen. Yeah, I, I would say this one was not very hard to see. Uh, like you said, how could you be? <laughs> how could you beat Russia? Uh, it, it was uh, pretty obvious, and uh, you know these people just are not very clever. Uh, uh, Biden, Newland, Sullivan, uh, Blinken, they've been at this uh, back since uh, 2014. Uh, it, this whole debacle goes back uh, at least to 2008. So we're in the 15th year of this debacle. Arguably, it goes back uh, 30 years. But let's just stay at uh, 2008 for one moment. You know, the point is, the U.S. has played a losing hand badly for 15 straight years. 
and this is really important to understand if one wants to learn a little bit about geopolitical poker, which is we keep raising the stakes on a losing hand because Russia wasn't demanding Ukrainian territory in 2007 and 2008. It was demanding one thing. Don't move NATO in. That's all perfectly sensible. Our top diplomats like Bill Burns, who was ambassador to Russia, said as much then, wrote the famous Nyet means Nyet memo uh, that uh, was uh, uh, known to the public through WikiLeaks uh, so that we really knew what they were saying. Uh, But nobody heeded that, of course, in the political class. Then came Newland uh, as the point person for the U.S. uh, in conspiring in the overthrow of uh, the Yanukovych uh, presidency in Ukraine in February 2014. And his offense was he wanted neutrality. That's all. Russia wasn't demanding territory under uh, Yanukovych. All they wanted and they got was a long-term lease of the Sevastopol naval base, the, the Russian naval base since 1783. They got a lease till 2042. But for the United States, this was not good enough. Uh, uh, we needed NATO there. So uh, Newland helped uh, and friends, and I know a lot of uh, what happened behind the scenes, uh, took out, helped to take out Yanukovych. And then uh, Putin grabbed uh, Crimea. Referendum took Crimea, but still was not demanding uh, anything more than that, not demanding uh, territory. All that Russia was demanding was don't shell the Russian ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine give a measure of autonomy. And that got negotiated in the so-called Minsk one and then Minsk two agreements. The Minsk two agreement was adopted 15 to nothing in the Security Council. Russia wasn't saying we want to own eastern Donbass. Russia was saying enforce an agreement that unanimously was adopted by the U.N. Security Council. Well, that wasn't good enough for the United States. The U.S. told Ukraine, don't worry about it. You don't have to implement that. We know that. We know that in some detail. So up until December 2021, Russia was not demanding more territory. But in December 17, 2021, President Putin put on the table the draft U.S.-Russia security arrangements based on two things. One, no NATO enlargement. And second, a negotiation over the placement of U.S. missile systems, especially Aegis missile systems in Eastern Europe, which Russia regarded understandably as a threat to Russia. The United States gave its formal reply in January 2022. We don't have to discuss any of that with you. That was the reply. We don't have to discuss NATO with you. It's none of your business. So even then, till that moment, Russia wasn't demanding uh, any territory. Then came the special military operation. The Russian Duma recognized the independence of Lugansk and Donetsk, didn't annex them, recognized the independence because we had lost the chance of just implementing the Minsk agreements. And then within three days of the start of the special military operation, Zelensky said, you know, no, no, maybe we should negotiate, uh, maybe neutrality. 
And in March of 2022, Russia and Ukraine negotiated an agreement based around Ukrainian neutrality. So here comes the U.S. with its lousy hand upping the ante again by running over to Kiev and telling them, no, no, you're not going to negotiate that. We're not going to give you any protection on that. So we blew it again. Then over the summer, Russia mobilizes. Uh, in the fall, it annexes uh, the four oblasts, uh, uh, not only Lugansk and Donetsk, but the Zaporizhia and the Kherson district, getting worse and worse for the United States. And then we tell them, don't worry, we've got your back. You just launch a, a major counteroffensive. Now, anyone watching at the time knew there was nothing there militarily. But there's our generals uh, strutting out, oh, we're so optimistic, said General Petraeus and others. What was clearly an impossibility. It seems nobody knows for sure in this uh, delusional approach of the government that maybe they thought this uh, coup by uh, Prigozhin uh, was, was the secret weapon. Who knows? But anyway, this was a complete debacle, of course. Uh, Ukraine lost tens of thousands of people in a very short period of time. It lost, again, the armies that had been built up, the uh, military hardware, the tanks, uh, the, uh, uh, all the uh, artillery systems and so forth. Uh, and uh, here we are. They've raised the stakes for 15 years on a losing hand, and they can't get it. And this is... This is our team. They're just, they failed. Biden needs, I mean, Biden, okay. We need a new foreign policy team and we need a new foreign policy approach and we need to negotiate before Ukraine is completely destroyed. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's so tragic that we're now in the position of having to beg the Russians to be happy with 20% of Ukraine, all that loss of life, all that loss of money and resources, all of it for naught. And the amazing thing is you've talked about these multiple disasters after 9-11, the Ukraine conflict, what we're doing in Israel. And the frustrating part of it all is that it's always the same people who never face accountability. They remain in power. They move up the kind of uh, ladder of, of power and they get rewarded for their failures. And of course, those failures are going to continue because there's no incentive for them not to continue that same path. Professor Sachs, it's always such a pleasure to talk to you, I think. I hope people will go back and look at what you've been saying on our show and elsewhere to see that you're not doing this kind of Monday morning quarterbacking. This is something that you've been urging and predicting from the start of the conflict. Um, unfortunately, I think you're going to be just as prescient when it comes to the disasters that we're going to have from this new Middle East conflict as well, which is brought to you by the same set of people. So it stands to reason that it will. Um, and we hope to have you back on in just a little bit, uh, as bad news as, Good, as it often brings. You know, maybe, maybe they can learn something so we don't have to go through another debacle like this. Let's hope. I, 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 I would like to hope, but I, I, I'm, I'm afraid I'm pessimistic. Thanks so much for, for taking the time to talk to us. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely great to be with you. Have Thanks a great so evening. Bye-bye. 
All right, so Michael Tracy, as you know, is a good friend of our show. He is an independent journalist who goes around on little different field trips whenever there are foreign affairs. He has spent the last several weeks in Israel and Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and elsewhere reporting on a lot of the domestic politics in Israel, the protest, um, all sorts of things that he's been seeing with regard to this war from the Israeli perspective. We are, as always, delighted to have him on our program. It's always a very tranquil and happy moment when we get to welcome Michael to the show. Uh, we really appreciate, Michael, that you are so generous with your time. I know it's like 2 or 3 in the morning there. You're looking very sprite, though, as usual. Thanks so much for being patient and talking to us tonight. It's always such an honor, Glenn. Yeah, you got to listen to Professor Sachs with a couple of history lessons that I'm sure you found illuminating. So let's start off, uh, before I get into specific questions, with your general impressions. You've been there, I think, two weeks, maybe two and a half weeks, almost three. Talk a little bit about where you've been, what you've been doing in Israel, and kind of the main takeaways of things that you've learned from having been there. Yeah, so it's been about two weeks, a little over two weeks thus far. And the first thing that I noticed, I have to say, was that even in Tel Aviv, which is the liberal hub, such as there is one in Israel, the amount of nationalistic imagery that just suffuses the entire place reminded me instantly of the post 9-11 period in the U.S. It was the only parallel that I could recall. And I was basically an adolescent, around 13 or 14 at the time, but even I can recall having been you know in northern new jersey um when that was going on so pretty in pretty close proximity to you know ground zero people had american flags waving on their porches and hanging out at their windows and all the cable news chirons had an american flag graphic um and you everywhere you look there was an american flag right and, and, you know, the United States is already a fairly uh, nationalistic or patriotic uh, country uh, anyway, but it really went into overdrive post 9-11. And in Israel, it's that, but times 10 or 100 or I don't know how many multiples, but somewhere in that vicinity. Um, so everywhere you go, it's just flag Israeli flag after Israeli flag. The um, images of the hostages are just beams on buildings all over and the posters which have also been put up in europe in the in the u.s as i understand it um but it just it's uh you couldn't help but notice at least i couldn't help but instantly notice how just suffuse this imagery is in the populace and it so it was that way in in tel aviv but also more pronounced in in jerusalem which is where i am now which is more of the um, probably more of a heavily religious uh, enclave, uh, more uh, probably right wing in its um, political orientation. So even more kind of a vociferous in that respect in a lot of ways. Um, so that's just one uh, observation. So the, to the extent that there's an app parallel with 9-11, because remember when the October 7th attack first happened, we kept being inundated with figures about how this was just like 9-11, but like times 20 because they tried to do a proportional extrapolation of the amount of casualties versus the overall uh, population. And so B Biden said 15 9-11s when he was in Israel, and then they got upgraded by Netanyahu later to 20 9-11s. Um, so it's supposed to like rally. Right. I, I saw a statistic today that there's now there's been 55 9-11s in Gaza, if you want to kind of do that math in terms of the number of people killed in Gaza versus <laughs> relative to their population. So Gaza has had 55 well, well, my question was, My month. question was if there are six people, if there are six people killed in the micro state of Monaco, 
then that's the equivalent of a 9-11 for them. Yeah, so it's kind of a creepy way of, of somehow valuing certain <laughs> lives over others. Let me ask you this question. I remember uh, there's this obvious tension, and it's the reason Hamas took hostages, which is, look, we have 250 of your citizens, we have children, we have you know innocent people here in Gaza. If you want to flatten Gaza, it means killing all these hostages that you're now valorizing. And there were articles I remember in the Israeli press about this kind of conflict between how much do you decide to just write off these hostages and bomb Gaza without regard to their lives? And yesterday or the day before, there was a relative of a, uh, of a family, one of whom was killed in the Hamas attack, but a couple of others who were taken hostage. And he was an Israeli Jew, and he was enraged at these members of Likud and the Knesset who were saying these casual slogans that are genocidal in nature, like, erase Gaza eliminate it from the map, wipe it off the face of the planet. And he was saying, who is it that you're erasing? You know, you're, you're talking about Jewish babies and Jewish children and Jewish hostages. What is the sense of how to reconcile, on the one hand, this valorizing of these hostages, the imagery of them all over the place, the pictures of them as martyrs, with the obvious fact that you're directly endangering their lives by refusing ceasefires or trading for hostages and just bombing everywhere in Gaza, where obviously the hostages have a lot high risk of being killed. Well, this is why there's such rage against Netanyahu within huge swaths of the Israeli population. So a dissimilarity with 9-11 is that, as you, I'm sure, recall, Glenn, George W. Bush's popularity in the wake of 9-11 skyrocketed to almost unprecedented heights. It's almost unfathomable now, but Bush's approval rating post 9-11 was like 92%, something just almost beyond belief, whereas Netanyahu hasn't enjoyed a surge of that kind yet, which is a bit counterintuitive because you'd expect a bit of a rallying around the flag effect and a bolstering of the support for the you know wartime leader who's leading the country into battle and netanyahu probably has been able to co consolidate political support to some extent because he does have this unity government that he instated with bringing in the opposition leader um benny benny gantz uh, or not the opposition leader but other party leaders into his war cabinet um and so he's not subject to the same kind of political pressures as he would have been before October 7th. And by the way, he's using that situation to basically, as a, one person affiliated with the Knesset explained to me, um, to basically rush through and enact a lots of uh, pre-existing measures that he probably would have wanted to get in, uh, enacted anyway. But now because of this wartime emergency law situation that's been Im imposed, he can kind of expedite the passage of a lot of different uh, measures. But on the question of the hostages, yeah, it is a paradox. And that's why you have lots of extremely angry protests uh, against Netanyahu. And now there are different factions of these anti-Netanyahu anti protests. Some of them are just infuriated about Netanyahu himself because they feel he's corrupt. I hear, heard he's sociopathic from people. I was at the Knesset uh, a few days ago in, in Jerusalem where there's uh, bereaved families of people who were killed on October 7th uh, who are protesting, um, soldiers and other, you know, the mothers of uh, killed soldiers and so forth. And their point is essentially that Netanyahu is running a fake government. He has no, he's not even really in charge of the war effort. 
Um, it's being mostly run by Yoel Gallant, who is the uh, basically the defense minister. Um, and so they're, they're trying to distinguish the war effort itself from Netanyahu. So a lot of people who hate Netanyahu are not necessarily against the war itself. But there's other factions who are more of a th- of thoroughgoing critics against the war itself and the logic underpinning it. So I've had uh, left-wing Israelis who do exist, and by the way, would be denounced as anti-Semitic in the United States by dopey, low-IQ, right-wing pundits. Um, but these left-wing Israelis, and also not even you know, not even the really ardently ideological uh, people, but people who just have a certain critique of the situation, um, they'll point out that Netanyahu and the government that he currently has in power around him, which is the most hardline and religious that has basically ever existed in Israeli history, because remember, from the founding of the country, most of the people who were running Israel, Israel were secular. They were Zionists, but they were not a hardline religious theocrats in the, in the way that a lot of the people who are in power now are. Um, and the idea that's being floated is that the uh, certain people in positions of power in Israeli society want to reintroduce the Jewish settlements that have been evacuated in 2005 within Gaza and reinstate them because they were always wrongfully withdrawn in the first place. That's the critique. And there's this messianic um, objective, essentially, to retain full Israeli control of the Gaza Strip and also ultimately the West Bank um, and East Jerusalem. And um, what these people who are critical of Netanyahu are suspecting, I think with some grounds, is that Netanyahu and the people who are running this war effort don't even prioritize the retrieval of the hostages. What they really prioritize is this conquest goal to basically reoccupy or to re-solidify the occupation of Gaza, because of course it's it's always been occupied in the sense of having its airspace and uh, water and ways and uh, population movements controlled by Israel since uh, 2007, but now they want a full-fledged reoccupation where it's basically uh, under full Israeli control. And Netanyahu has made comments to that effect by saying that the, he's going to insist on full, quote, security control of, of Gaza and that there will be no civil administration that Israel objects to in Gaza, which is effectively seems like an occupation, although he's not being especially forthright about what that would entail. But the point is the, 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 the objection among these this segment of the Israelis against Netanyahu is that because of these um, overriding ideological or even religious objectives about the rightful place of Gaza within the Jewish homeland, he's basically foregoing what should be his solemn primary obligation, which is retrieval of the hostages. Um, and so that's a, a paradox that really has yet to resolve itself. You know, it's interesting that there are some obvious parallels between Bush and 9-11 and Netanyahu on October 7th. Uh, for one thing, remember, Bush was an extremely polarizing president. The Almost all Democrats and liberals believe that Bush had stolen the 2000 election as a result of that Supreme Court decision that stopped the count in Florida, whereas Netanyahu was obviously involved in, embroiled in all kinds of civic strife. And 9-11 was also an intelligence failure. We had spent 
tens of billions of dollars a year on the NSA and on the CIA and all kinds of surveillance programs designed to detect. Bin Laden determined to strike inside the U.S. Remember that was the memo that was given to the Bush White House in August of 2001? Exactly. And all of that got papered over in the name of a kind of immediate unity, a shocking unity. No one wanted to hear that Bush was responsible. I think the big difference is he was only in office for about eight months, whereas Netanyahu has been you know, overstayed his welcome. He's governed Israel for 15 out of the last 20 years or whatever it is. Um, He's the longest serving Israeli prime minister by far now. Yeah. And there is, you know, really the Israelis were on the verge of a civil war over his corruption trial, over the attempt to eliminate judicial independence. One of the things I want to ask you, though, is I keep getting kind of conflicting views about the extent to which they have given space to Israeli critics of Netanyahu and Israeli protesters, especially on the Israeli left. We had a member of the Knesset on who's a member of the left-wing party in the Knesset who's a vehement supporter of Netanyahu. He said he thinks that uh, Israeli Arabs in the Knesset and left-wing Israelis are endangered by these kind of roving fascist militia bands that are well-armed and answer to certain members, the more extremist religious ones in the Netanyahu government. And yet, since you've been there, you've described some some protests that you've seen. What is your sense of, and I want to separate for a moment, the Israeli Arabs who are getting arrested for things like looking at social media postings that are deemed too sympathetic to the Gazans. They've introduced a new social media law that's incredibly repressive. But what about the Israeli left, the Israeli Jewish left? What is their ability to freely protest without being menaced by the state or roving militias? Well, in Tel Aviv, where I spent my first week here, I didn't see the police giving any trouble at all to the left-wing protesters who were congregating basically every night. Like I tried to spell out before us, they have different views as to the war effort itself versus a grievance against Netanyahu. But whatever they were expressing, they were allowed to protest essentially unhindered. It was a radically different experience in Jerusalem as I observed it when I got here, because on Friday, um, a small group of you know left wing primarily demonstrators. And by the way, an interesting demographic phenomenon in Israel is that the left-wing contingent of societies is now overwhelmingly concentrated among the old. So it's the remnants of the Israeli kind of labor left or the socialists who were dominant in Israel in its early days, but now they're aging out of society essentially. And the uh, younger people, and this is reflected also in the polling data that I saw even well before the current war broke out of, uh, as to Israel, the younger demographics are much more rabid much uh, and, and uh, right-wing and uh, religious because now there's you know, second or third generation and they don't really have much cognizance or at least as much cognizance of the kind of in part socialistic origins of the Israeli state. Um, but beyond that, um, on Friday – there was a small protest in the morning. So like not one of these like nighttime kind of very rambunctious rabble rousing protests populated by young men looking for a fight or something. These were older people overwhelmingly, I think almost exclusively people aged maybe 45 or 50 and up at a morning protest on Friday of last week at the courthouse right near where I am now in Jerusalem, um, where a, 
history teacher was being held, an Israeli Jew, left-wing Jew, uh, maybe 50 or 60 years old, who had been uh, arrested and detained by the local police, which I should note is controlled by this guy, Ben Gavir, mm -hmm. who is one of the most extreme members of the Netanyahu coalition. Yeah, it's like his own private He's militia. It's an armed militia that it's barely within the normal governmental accountability of the Israeli government. It's really like a militia that answers directly to him. No, but it's, it's, it's a government unit, though. I mean, yeah, it's but in theory, I know it is. I know it. I yeah. know it officially it's a government yeah. unit, but it's a government unit really controlled by him. They are loyal to him more so than Israeli law, the right. Knesset, or the Israeli government. Right. So anyway, there was this pretty placid protest going on at the courthouse because this history teacher, his name is uh, Meyer Barukin, was arrested for essentially just posting stuff on Facebook that was critical of the war effort. Now... Even people who don't like Netanyahu would probably be offended by what this guy was posting. It was uh, more on the, you know, toward the outer fringe of Israeli popular opinion. But whatever the case may be, it was still uh, just Facebook posts, essentially. And he was arrested and it, it basically detained without charge for uh, several days. The judge who presided over it ended up invoking or citing a provision of Israeli law around, a, quote, incitement to treason as to why this person was being detained. Um, so this small group of protesters showed up, um, uh, you know, in the morning around 10 and nine or 10 o'clock in the morning and just did a, again, a fairly unremarkable protest. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, and I was there just talking to some older women, including one woman who must've been 80 years old, not even exaggerating. I look up and then this band of uh, riot cops, essentially, who are under the command of this Ben Gavir, or at least mixed in with those people, because it's hard to t distinguish necessarily what law enforcement officer reports to whom, similar to the U.S., where there's like always multiple layers of law enforcement personnel that are commingled. But by and large, it was under it was this unit called Yasom, who are you know basically for the most part respond to riot control type situations in East Jerusalem to do with Paris Palestinians and Arabs, right? When there's supposed an arrest like in Sheikh Jarrah um, in 2021, which precipitated that conflict uh, in, in Gaza. Um, uh, but they all of a sudden they started, they just stormed, I mean, the police stormed this docile group of left-wing older protesters. No young, I was the youngest person there probably. Um, and we're throwing old women to the ground, chasing them around, <coughs> cursing at them in Hebrew. I had to personally run away. I got shoved and just really in the back out of nowhere as I was just trying to get out of there. Um, there are women, older women thrown to the ground. These are, and these are women. I talked to three women who have, uh, sons or daughters currently deployed to fight in the war, either in Gaza or on the outskirts. They're in the war operation right now. They're against what's going on from the standpoint of they feel as though these hyper-religious objectives are what is being served by the war effort. And they, I think, understandably resent 
that the hyper-religious elements of Israeli society get carve-outs and exceptions for military service. Oh, yeah, that's a huge source of, like, resentment another, that these religious fanatics yes. are often pushing these wars, even though they remain exempt from the fighting. And you have these secularists in Tel Aviv who have to go and do all the fighting because they don't have this religious exemption. Michael, just for the last uh, question I have for you, let me just ask you this. I'm really curious about this. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish your answer. Okay, yeah. So, so, so they, 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 uh, they ambushed this older group of Israelis, threw them to the ground. Women were injured. They were shouting at them, go to Gaza. You're, they were calling them Hamas. And what was shocking to the Israeli Jews who were the victims of this ambush, this police name ambush, was that these are the type of tactics they would have ordinarily associated with the police conduct toward Arabs and Palestinians. Now it was being brought to bear on the small remnants in Jerusalem of Israeli Jews who are critical of the government. So that's the kind of watershed shift. And um, as far as I know, this guy, this history teacher was, uh, according to a report I just saw actually just uh, recently from today, he was apparently rearrested and is back in custody. Yeah, um, so, that, so, more, so, let me, uh, so, so, so let's that. stay with that because there obviously is this radical change. Everyone I know who goes to Israel a lot, who cares about Israel a lot, has obviously said the face of Israel has changed pretty dramatically in the last 10 years for all sorts of reasons. Historically, the United States has had the ability to restrain Israel. There was that uh, report about how Ronald Reagan during the 1980s basically put a stop to some of the more extreme Israeli aggression in Lebanon and elsewhere by simply telling them, you knock it off now or we're going to cut off your aid. Bush 41 had a lot of success in forcing the Israelis to make concessions about settlement expansions. They threatened, James Baker did, under Bush 41 to withhold loan guarantees if they didn't. And obviously Obama and other presidents throughout the years, often quietly and privately, have tried to put restraints on what the Israelis can do, knowing that it can reflect and will reflect negatively in the United States, not just reputationally, but in terms of our national security. One of the things I was noticing even before the war started, but certainly since, where people like Naftali Bennett writing an essay in The Economist and other statements where they were basically saying, look, we're appreciative of U.S. aid, but we are no longer allowing U.S. aid to restrict us from what we believe we need to do in our national interest to survive. We're going to do it anyway. And Professor Sachs is talking about the different pressures that can be brought to bear on the Israelis to end this siege of Gaza, to end this bombardment of Gaza, UN councils, Biden administration that doesn't appear near willing to do it. But hypothetically, the things that could happen, and I really question whether this new Israeli government is religiously fanatical as it is, as devoted to seizing and annexing the West Bank and Gaza as part of Greater Israel to drive out the people of Gaza, either to internal displacement or even into the Sinai, how willing they really are, how much they care about international pressure or even pressure from the United States, their prime sponsor and benefactor, that they're basically of the attitude, we are going to finish this no matter what. We don't care what the UN says. We don't care what the international community says. We don't even care what the US says. I'm curious about your view of that question. Yeah, because there's internal pressure within elements of the Netanyahu coalition on him to not capitulate to any international pressure, and that would include the US. So Israel in a way has the leverage in this situation, not in terms of the power dynamic or the power 
distribution because that's clearly wielded by the U.S. But in terms of like the political contours of how that power is managed, in a way, the Israel calls the shots um, because as dependent as they are on U.S. military, diplomatic, and financial backing and political uh, blessing for their their war effort. Um, in terms of the strategic imperatives, in terms of in terms of how those resources are marshaled, Israel is calling the the shots clearly, or seems to be. I don't know. You tell me. I see Biden administration officials like Tony Blinken, who's supposed to be the chief diplomat, but seems to always be opposing all diplomacy. Um, they will. What the the strategy has been is to raise these kind of procedural or technical complaints about various aspects of how Israel might be conducting the offensive. So they're saying. So you know, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, was on the Sunday TV shows this weekend saying we don't want hospitals to be caught in the line of fire. And so the, uh, to the untrained eye, that might come across as, oh, wow, the Biden administration is actually you know, criticizing some aspects of Israeli government uh, behavior. But what they're doing in practice is giving a political buffer to Israel by, by helping them kind of manage the political fallout for their actions, erasing these pretensions to concern around humanitarian aid. They introduced this ridiculous euphemism humanitarian pauses, which means you unpause and the bombardment starts. So it's not even to do anything to do with a quote ceasefire, but they've moved beyond that. So all the technical or procedural um, apprehensions that might be expressed by the Biden administration really redounds to the advantage of Israel in the sense it allows them to have more of a more of political breathing room to conduct the offensive in the same way that they'd be, they'd be doing anyway. Um, so no, I don't see the I don't see Israel really uh, buckling to much pressure from the U.S. in this regard, in, in part because they know that there's such a vocal contingency in the U.S. that will utterly revolt, including, yes, donors. I know that's supposed to be anti-Semitic to note that there are lots of wealthy Jewish donors who exert influence on the American government in a pro-Israel direction. That's their explicitly stated aim. But you're, I guess, anti-Semitic to, to note that, but it happens to be true, so sorry. Uh, but those are the types of people, including in the Democratic Party and the Republican Party, pay, fa- fairly evenly distributed, who um, you know just are not going to stand for any um, divergence there between the U.S. and Israel. Congress is united. There was just a big pro-Israel uh, march or rally in Washington D.C. today with Chuck Schumer and Speaker Mike Johnson and Hakeem Jeffries and uh, Joni Ernst standing side by side in this bicameral, bipartisan resolve to they say unequivocally support Israel. So there can't even be any equivocation or questioning in terms of how they're presenting it. Um, so, uh, yeah, but even if there are, I'm sure, some quiet uh, murmurings of discontent with aspects of how Netanyahu in particular is handling this, because remember, Netanyahu was at loggerheads with the Biden administration, uh, sorry, though, the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration, in certain respects, he delivered a speech to Congress at the invitation of the House Republicans that basically rebuked Obama's signature diplomatic initiative, the Iran nuclear deal, um, and on and on and on. So Biden can't be perfectly glad to have Netanyahu in power. I'm sure they'd rather have one of their old friends in like the Israeli Labor Party or its subsequent offshoots running the the war effort. But nonetheless, there doesn't seem to be much uh, will or desire or even in a way ability to exert the leverage, even though it technically exists. I mean, they could withdraw aid. 
But then, but you know, what's Biden going to do? Uh, veto one of these bills? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, Biden, I, I think uh, that I think that's the big paradox. Is the reality is there's a uh, an election in the United States in less than a year where a very weak president, President Biden, President Biden is running for re-election. He already has major problems in the polls, and I think the Israelis know and Biden knows that it would be almost fatal or very injurious to those re-election efforts. Imagine if Netanyahu came out and said. Joe Biden is impeding our ability to defeat Hamas. I think Netanyahu knows he has that leverage. Biden lives in fear of that. And the reality is, is that the tail wags the dog and that Israel seems like the kind of client state that receives the money and is dependent on the United States. But in reality, politically, the Biden administration is completely hamstrung, even if they wanted to pressure the Israelis. And I think given Joe Biden's long history of steadfast, unflinching support for the Israelis, there's really no desire to do so. Michael, I know it's super late there. Um, I want to be nice to you and say that you look so sprite for the middle of the night. I genuinely appreciate your being up and staying up for our show. Um, I've been napping for you, Glenn, in anticipation of our um, dramatic uh, meeting here. So yeah, it's been great. You I've are yet, up. You know, you, I, uh, I've been... I've been uh, Sucking down. I mean, they have glorious uh, iced coffee. I mean, the, the best, my favorite part of Israel so far is that they have all iced coffee is presumptively in a slushy style. And so I've been getting those slushy iced coffees to rejuvenate myself so I can have. Well, you're, the, you're looking super energized, like it's, it's 11 in the morning. So congratulations on that. Uh, Michael, thank you so much. It was uh, super illuminating. I'm glad you're over there and uh, we'll have you back on soon. Have a good night. All right. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. So that concludes our show for this evening. As a reminder, System Update is also available in podcast version where you can listen to each episode on Spotify, Apple, and all of the major podcasting platforms. If you uh, Each episode posts there 12 hours after they are first broadcast live here on Rumble. And if you rate and review and follow the show, it really helps spread the visibility of the program. Every Tuesday and Thursday night, and since tonight is Tuesday, once we're done with our live show here on Rumble, we move to Locals, which is part of the Rumble platform, where we have our live interactive after show for our subscribers to the Locals community, where we take your questions, respond to your feedback and critiques, hear your suggestions. If you want to have access to that show and and you want to have access to the daily transcripts of our programs that we publish there, as well as the independent journalism that we put there. And if you want to support the independent journalism that we do here, you can simply click the Join button right below the video player on the Rumble page. It will take you to our local community where you can join. For those of you who have been watching the show, we are, as always, very grateful. We hope to see you back tomorrow night and every night at 7 p.m. Eastern, live exclusively here on Rumble. Have a great evening, everybody. Yeah.